The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's Wednesday, January the 12th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. I think it's safe to say at this point that we are definitively into 2022, but it's also true that there's great uncertainty still remaining around what lies ahead in the immediate future as the Omicron variant of COVID-19 sweeps across the country with extraordinary and unprecedented numbers of infections reported daily. So what does that all mean from a political perspective? Jennifer Bray and Harry McGee from our political staff are here to discuss the road ahead. Happy New Year to you both. Hi, Hugh. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you and all of our few, many listeners. <laughs> many, many. Many, the, many. The many, not the few. In, many in, more in, in 2022. Our, in our case, Jen. Yeah. Let me go to you first with what is really the top news line item this morning, on um, Wednesday morning, which is that the government is considering recommendations from Tony Hollihan on on easing the restrictions on close contacts of people who have tested positive for COVID, Jen. Yeah, so there's a couple of things here. Uh, the first thing is, um, so this is all coming on foot of, firstly, recommendations from the ECDC over the weekend. And secondly, then on foot of those, um, a letter from Tony Hollihan to Stephen Donnelly yesterday afternoon. And in that letter, he makes a number of recommendations. The first one, I suppose, is that and this will have a really big impact on the testing system, they hope, is that previously, if you had a, you know, remember over Christmas, the rules change and they're changing all the time. Nobody can really keep up with them. But if you had a positive antigen test, you need to go get that confirmed uh, with a confirmatory PCR test. Now they've changed it so that if you have a positive antigen test, that is enough for you to basically be declared as having COVID-19. Um, so what that effectively means is that Previously, it was the case that the only people who could go and get a PCR test if they got the positive antigen were people who were over the age of uh, 40, young kids or healthcare workers. And this basically really frees up massive capacity in the testing system because we know that it's currently operating at surge capacity, which means at the very upper limits of its of its region and beyond, um, and that we have capacity for between antigens and PCR, 650,000 tests a week. So what they're hoping is this eases up the pressure and that the people who need to get PCR tests the most will be able to get them. Um, the second change that is made, uh, that's going to be floated a little bit, um, this will be confirmed by the Cabinet, and this is the change to the isolation um, rule. So basically what that means is that if you are a close contact of a confirmed case of COVID-19, and you have had your booster, previously you had to isolate for five days. That's being done away with now. And the hope here is that this will relieve like a huge amount of the pressure. 
in all different walks of life, all different sectors, whether it be in hospitals, whether it be in hospitality, um, teachers, guards, wherever, whatever job you're working in, um, that this will mean that you won't be out of action for those five days if you've been boosted. But of course, on the proviso that you don't have any symptoms. The other change, I suppose, then if you are a close contact of a confirmed case of COVID-19, but you haven't had your booster shot, um, you'll now have to isolate or uh, uh, self-restrict your movements for seven days. The final change then is if you yourself have got COVID-19 um, and previously it was the case that people who had a booster shot uh, had to restrict their movements for uh, isolate for seven days um, and that people who hadn't a booster, that was 10 days. That's now going to be reduced for seven days for everyone. So anyone who gets COVID boosted or not, it's seven days. Um, and then the close contacts, no no um, uh, restriction of your movements have been boosted seven days uh, if, if you haven't. Um, so they're the main changes that, that have been agreed. So if I could ask you, um, there's a couple of things that strike me about that. One is that uh, there's ample space for confusion here with all these changes and these different kinds of groups of people who are required to act in different ways. And I'm sure there will be some confusion. But the other one is that, you know, the, the kind of dialectic up to now has been that um, you have the health authorities recommending stricter guidelines and government pushing back to some extent because they have a broader range of concerns that they need to represent, for example, economic ones. But in this case, this relaxation, which seems to me to be designed to help keep schools open, hospitals running, uh, shops open, all those kinds of things, is actually coming from Tony Holohan and therefore maybe seems to suggest that the health authorities are relatively sanguine about where this is all going, despite the huge positive numbers at the moment. Yeah, I would agree. And, you know, it's so interesting, you know, previously when we had even the smallest of increases and spikes, it was kind of a cause for alarm. I think you remember last year we were suddenly, one week we were turning a corner into beating this thing and the next week we were talking about restrictions and that's how quickly things moved. And, you know, I think if you had told people at the start of the pandemic that, you know, I remember a day when there was 123, I think, cases notified and everybody got a bit like, oh, my God, 123 cases. Yesterday, uh, there was a, a headline in our paper that up to half a million people could have uh, contracted COVID-19 last week. And people just kind of said, oh, God, well, anyway, you know, it's an incredible uh, journey and distance that we've come. And it's not just us, exactly like you point out, um, the NEFIT and the health experts. So, you know, it was, it's interesting. I read their letter latest letter to government, which they sent, Tony Holland sent last Thursday, um, and it went up online yesterday. And they talk about how dire the situation is in terms of case numbers, in terms of the pressure on the um, testing system, um, in terms of staff absences from, from the health service and, and, and the extreme pressure there. And then they, they reference the most important part, which has always been the most important part, which is the fact that the level of hospitalizations and the level of admissions to intensive care units has, as they say in the letter, is actually remaining relatively stable. And that's the key, I think. That's the reason why this is different to all the previous times. It's because it would appear, nobody wants to say 100% that the link between rising cases and uh, hospitalizations has been broken, but it really does look that way. And that's why we're in a position where the, the panic button isn't being pressed at the moment, I think. Harry, do you agree with that? We seem to be in a very, very different period of the of the pandemic now than we were even three months ago, much less at the start of it. Oh, yeah, for sure. There's no doubt about that at all, Hugh. If you look at the cases, the cases are reaching record levels each day. Yet people, I'm not saying that they're blasé about it, but people are far less concerned than they have been previously. And of course, there are reasons for that. We know that this particular variant seems to be much milder than Delta and previous variants. That's borne out by the figures that you always think that's going to be a lagging 
effect uh, when case numbers are published. But we have extraordinarily high case numbers, above 20,000 every day. We have 1,000 people in hospital and we can't try to diminish that in terms of it's important. But then when you look at the figure in relation to intensive care units, you're talking about 92 people in total in ICU. And that number has remained consistent over the past week. And the experience from elsewhere has shown us that uh, despite the very high case numbers in South Africa in particular, the number of hospitalizations uh, and the number of deaths and the number of serious illnesses were very, very small in comparison to earlier uh, variants. Now, there are caveats to that, of course, the population of South Africa is younger than the population of most European countries, including Ireland. But I mean, the net point is that, you know, I mean, the common cold started off life as a coronavirus. And I'm sure hundreds and hundreds of years ago, before it mutated, it probably was lethal. But then it became successful as a virus and spread. And the more successful the virus becomes, the lesser its virulence or its impact. And politically, uh, we're seeing extraordinary phenomena as well. We're seeing uh, Tony Houlihan in the guise of uh, good cop as opposed to bad cop. It's only a couple of weeks ago when he was telling people not to do any Christmas shopping or any post-Christmas shopping uh, because of fears of the virus spreading. And uh, a fortnight later, he is agreeing to a relaxation of isolation periods, as outlined by Jen there, that are even more liberal than those of the European Disease Control Centre, uh, which is extraordinary as well. And just, um, I mean, the, the key to all of this, of course, is the, the vaccinations. The vaccination programmes have been successful. Most people have now got their boosters. They're moving on to kids. And my own daughter is getting her vaccine tomorrow. And uh, it looks like like most kids between five and 12 will be vaccinated over the next couple of weeks. So we will have a, a high national rate of protection against uh, COVID. And as well as that, half a million people getting the uh, virus and not suffering, most of them not suffering any untoward consequences will mean that the uh, protection from the virus is heightened even more uh, because of the natural antibodies uh, that they will be con- containing. So even though we're in uh, reaching the peak of this particular wave, uh, the concern levels are so low in comparison to previous waves of uh, COVID-19. That said, there are potential pitfalls. There always are political pitfalls for the for the government in particular, Jen. It strikes me two of them are, first of all, in relation to costs, which people are being asked to bear themselves, whether it be the antigen tests, which they're now taking. When you went for a PCR test, the, the state covered the costs. Um, and now you're being told to take an antigen test instead. And those do cost money, as we know. And those costs can mount up in a household, particularly uh, if that household is not particularly well off. And there doesn't seem to be any... Um, they are being sent out to people, but otherwise people have to buy them themselves. People are sent out to people if they request them because of symptoms. But asymptomatic people still have to pay for them themselves. And the other one is there is a recommendation for using higher grade masks in certain contexts and those masks themselves also carry costs as well. So there might be some pushback on that. But the bigger question I wonder about is there's bound to be pressure as we get to there is a there is a key date at the end of January when the state decides what comes next. And there's questions about pubs and restaurants and Six Nations rugby and all kinds of things on which decisions will have to be made. And those might be quite fraught. You're right. Yeah, like it's it's all well and good saying, OK, we're in a position now where the National Public Health Emergency Team has said, don't change any of these restrictions until the end of January, which is what they said. And we've we've seen in the past the politicians, sometimes they can take cover in that. You know, they can say, well, this is the recommendation from the team. And, we th- you know, we haven't reached the peak yet. And only a fool would 
start relaxing restrictions before we've got there. So that's the pattern they're in now. But you're right, like that will change really quickly. You know, if the modelling proves correct, we could see like a drastic plummeting of cases towards the end of January and into early February. And that's when the pressure really comes on. Now, it's definitely the case that the pressure is already on ministers. I've spoken to ministers and it's not just that they, you know, have publicans in their ear or, you know, restaurants, um, cinemas, you name it, anything that used to be open after 8pm effectively, um, you know, sports, outdoor sports, all that kind of stuff. Um, it's also the cost of it, like you said, generally to, to uh, the political system. They have that on their mind. They are under pressure, but there's a lot of them who actually also believe that the science behind stuff like the 8pm closing is dubious. And they say this kind of privately. They're not saying it publicly yet, but I don't think it will be long until they do. And um, I would give it two weeks. And I think that's when you will see a change uh, in, in, in those rules. I do know that there are a lot of ministers who believe that when we get to the point when we've got, you know, after the peak and we start to have that conversation about removing the partial restrictions that we have, that we shouldn't be a country that is, you know, overly cautious. They want to be there's many ministers said to me that we've been a laggard, basically, in comparison to European counterparts, and that when it comes to the time, we shouldn't hang around. We should say, OK, this is gone, that is gone, this is gone, and we're getting back to whatever kind of normality uh, we, we can. So, yeah, I, I think we'll see a little bit more. I think it's just a little bit too early for them to go there until the Omicron uh, wave peaks, which they don't quite know when it'll happen. It's either happening now or happen later in the week. Um, so we'll have to wait and see. And the other thing I would say is... Um, politically, you mentioned antigen tests. Yes, Sinn Féin are already out saying that if the new rules say that you only need antigen tests and you're not going to get a PCR test, and that's what you need to tell your employer, etc., etc., that you have COVID-19, then it should be subsidised by the state. And I think this will become a really big issue today, tomorrow and into next week. And the final, final thing I would say, if people are confused about the new rules, I don't know whether this works for anybody and it will probably change next week, but I just think about 007 seven seven okay so no confirmatory test no isolation period if you've had your booster you're a close contact seven days if you have uh, had a boost uh, you haven't had a booster and you're a close contact and then seven days if you've covid uh booster at seven days if you've covid without a booster zero double oh seven 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 is that right very interesting. That replaces the RSVP that we had at, that we had at Christmas. This could be our, the new marketing push by Netflix, isn't it? Look, it only be in place for a week, so but it might be helpful. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Harry, can I ask you, with all this COVID stuff still going on and seemingly not going away in the immediate future, 
Where is normal politics? I mean, the doll returns next week. Is there much of a legislative agenda that the government will be pushing through over the over the successive months? I mean, it seems to have gone off the radar entirely. Yeah, uh, it's 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 kind of funny. Uh, normal politics is continuing to kind of trundle uh, along. I, I think over the past number of years, uh, a, one issue has tended to dominate uh, the agenda. Before COVID, of course, it was Brexit that dominated everything for about three or four years, and it's still there. But it doesn't. It's it's not where it was uh, once COVID came along. Um, but there is a lot. I mean, the government did get a fair amount of legislation to the Dáil in twenty. 21, despite all the restrictions, the Doyle has returned to its kind of normal sitting hours. Uh, the committees are back in full flow. So there's actually quite a big uh, agenda of work and all the kind of the limits that we saw imposed in 2020 have more or less uh, gone uh, away. So I think that during 2022, we will see far more of that, the kind of the mundane and the quotidian politics being played out. Uh, very uh, tedious legislation being debated even more tediously in the Doyle, uh, being kind of scrutinised line by line uh, at at uh, committee. And if you look at the programme for government, notwithstanding the, the that it was drafted during the middle of the first COVID wave, it's quite ambitious in relation to the legislation and the kind of policy platform it has set out for itself. And I expect more of that to happen uh, during the course of this year. Just in terms of politics, one of the things that struck me during this week that was kind of interesting uh, was that um, it, it went to one of the old tropes or one of the old themes in politics about one rule for the privileged and another rule for the hoi polloi, for the ordinary person. Uh, it hasn't really been played out in Ireland this week, but in Westminster we see what's happening with Boris Johnson at present uh, with the uh, so-called party that took place in Downing Street and the controversy in Australia over uh, Novak Djokovic and his visa to play in the Australian uh, Open, a kind of um, uh, uh, are resonant of, of themes that we've seen uh, over many years in, in Irish politics and elsewhere. People really hate uh, when people get privileges. They really hate when politicians begin feathering their own nests. They really hate uh, when one rule is drafted for those in a position of privilege and there's another rule for everybody else. And we've seen those themes uh, feature very strongly over the past couple of days, and I'm sure those teams uh, will find a place to be played out in Irish politics over the next couple of months as well. Indeed, and of course we've had our incidents, and in fact, you know, some of them, the Gulfgate-related ones, are before the courts as we speak, but we don't seem to have the absolute, you know, political turmoil which is happening across the water arising out of Boris Johnson's activities almost two years ago now, we should remember, at the height of of the first wave of the pandemic. But I do still wonder, Jan, about about politics. I mean, this government, we're a year and a half into this government now, and there's a lot of been a lot of focus on, you know, the usual, the intra-party tensions, you know, the the, the leaders, the, the state of the polls, that kind of thing. But, you know, some Irish governments are quite activist and their record is quite strong in terms of legislation. Some aren't. Um, the last one, for example, I think it's fair to say wasn't in its last couple of years. Didn't seem to be doing a lot, was just getting through the Brexit experience. This, as Harry says, this it has quite a, you know, quite a full agenda of things that it, that it claims to want to do over the next two years. Yeah, I would, I would agree. If you remember, was it 2016, 17, 18-ish when the phrase do nothing doll was bandied around an awful lot? Um, I think it's because of the minority government and the fact that it was much more difficult for the government to get bills through, given that they kind of 
tacitly had to be run by Fianna Fáil and, and, and that had its problems. Um, and there's, there's been a couple of reforms since then, you know, things like pre-legislative scrutiny, it's basically a clearinghouse, um, which has changed things. And I do think that this year will be different because hopefully nobody knows, like Harry said, what's going to happen with Omicron or COVID. But hopefully this is us now finally learning to, to you know, finding a way to, to live with it, which means that politics, come, other politics can, can have space to breathe again. And I have a feeling that this is going to be a year... Um, of greater regulation in that if we look at what's in on the pipeline, you know, Catherine Martin, for example, she will be bringing, uh, pushing forward a bill on online safety uh, media regulation. This will see the first media commissioner set up to regulate the media landscape for the first time. That'll be really interesting to see what their remit will be, what power they have in relation to social media companies, whether it makes any difference. Um, if you then think about justice, you have the promise of the first gambling regulator, long overdue or some of our gambling laws go back to the 20s and 30s you know they're arcane um and the 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 pledge has been that we will see this person uh this first gambling regulator and the commission set up for the first time this year and both of those things will be really really important tangible things that could actually make a difference to people's lives you know people whose families have been absolutely devastated by gambling and there is no recourse for any kind of proper help from the state so you know, when I think about the year ahead, I, I imagine those are the things that have been promised for decades. And, and if they can get those big ticket I- items through, I think they'll be doing quite well. I wanted to ask you about something else, which is not on the national politics scale. But on the other hand, it might do because it might have ramifications. It's an unusual case involving the Standards and Public Office um, who um, have censured uh, a Monaghan councillor, his name is Seamus Trainer, for the content of the leaflets which he sent out or his campaign sent out during the, the 2019 election. It's sort of in, unprecedented. And when I saw this story, first of all, I thought this is unusual and perhaps should be receiving more attention that a state body is in a position to take action against campaign statements, essentially, by somebody running for democratic office. Could you tell us a bit more about it? Yeah, so basically this is uh, the result of an investigation by SIPO that they released the details of, I think it was late last week. Um, and basically the the Standards and Public Office Commission, what they found was that it was an election leaflet, which was issued by an independent councillor in Monaghan. His name, like you said, his name's councillor, James Trainer. This was before the 2019 local elections. And what they found was that this leaflet breached the Code of Conduct for Councillors and the Ethics in Public Office Act. And I do think it's important to mention those two things because obviously they're the grounds under which this decision and and these findings were made. Um, And if we get into the detail of what the alleged problems were when they were, basically it was complaints that went into the council um, from the public, I believe, and which were then brought to to SIPO. So the first one was that it was factually incorrect. Is this is the uh, what they call statement of alleged contraventions? Um, that it was number one. This is in in the commission's report that it was factually incorrect and misleading to say in his leaflet that ninety two percent of asylum seekers are quote deemed to be bogus. The second was that it was legally incorrect to claim that EU migrants could claim benefits after only seventy two hours in Ireland. And the third alleged contravention in the report was that it was factually incorrect and misleading to say that there were 22 economic migrants that were housed in the county um, upon on the distru- um, instruction of the Department of Justice. So what the findings were of, of, of the commission, they were actually really strong. And I might just go through uh, uh, one or two of them. They found that um, on, on the first one in relation to bogus, um, bogus claims from refugees trying to get into the country, 
they found that the cancer trainer deliberately adopted emotive, open-ended and accusatory language without reference to sources or evidence. They also said that a statement that someone entering the country from another EU member state can claim benefits for 72 hours was on evidence from their own uh, uh, evidence from uh, a legal advisor to the commission was without foundation and calculated to denigrate and anger. And then they found that the um, councillor's objection to this 22 houses, basically to economic migrants, I think is the phrase that he used in the, in, in the leaflet, um, they said on, on evidence that is shown to be inaccurate and that it had the effect of demonising an, an identifiable group of people and also had the effect of generating a sense of grievance amongst other groups of people. Uh, and they found this inaccuracy to be particularly egregious um, and caused uh, an inflammatory creation of a them versus us narrative. So that they were their findings. I think you can agree like they're, they're, they're quite strong. I think the question maybe that will be asked um, possibly is around the right of uh, free speech um, for an elected representative. And I'm happy to go into that with you. But one thing I will say before that is that in the hearings, um, which I read a transcript of in the two in the morning, because sometimes insomnia will get you. <laughs> but uh, in the transcript of those hearings, uh, the the council or the, the legal representative for the, the councillor, Monaghan, said that he didn't believe that comments that are made during canvassing come under the, the basically the rules that councillors are supposed to be held under. And it was the commission's argument that when you're canvassing, you're very much canvassing with, you know, the aim of being a councillor. You're talking about the work you're going to do. And also, if you can just say, well, that was I only said that when I was canvassing, then it would undermine the entire code because you could just say you were canvassing at any time you said something that was potentially inaccurate. So they said they weren't going to go there. OK, well, just to understand one practicality element of that, then if he had not been a councillor at the time, but had been running for the council, he wouldn't have been subject to these regulations because this was because of his behaviour at a time when he was a councillor. Yeah, but there, what the commission seems to be saying is is that regardless of that, if you are undertaking work that is aimed at that kind of, you know, being a councillor or work of the council um, or work of a local authority, then that will be, you should come under the remit of that councillor's code of conduct and those other relevant. Um, it, it's a really interesting one and they had an argument about it and, and the commission came down one way, I think it will be interesting in future if if it did turn out that stuff you said when you were canvassing didn't count because then we're in for some interesting elections. I think. Well, it would, but these are not regulations which have been which have been tested in the in the in this way before. And Harry, the one thing that strikes me listening to that is, and obviously you know some of some of this debate, and I should say, personally, first of all, I think it was pretty appalling nonsense, garbage that 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 this councillor published uh, in his electoral literature. That's my my own personal view. But but some of the the, the things he was found guilty of doing, I'm just looking at what Jen was saying there, you know, uh, using accusatory and emotive language, uh, playing on a sense of grievance, uh, using a notion of us versus them. Is that not what a huge amount of political discourse and campaigning does most of the time? Absolutely. Um, I think you have to distinguish, distinguish between two um different uh, concepts, one which is easier to uh, deal with, the other one which is more problematic. The one that's easier to deal with is what is fact and what is fiction. And it was clear that some of his literature was not borne out by evidence. You know, he was talking about 92% of those who come in are bogus asylum seekers. And that wasn't true. And I mean, there will always be some people who come in who have no status in terms of the uh, asylum claims that they, they made. But the 92% uh, figure wasn't borne out by any evidence. 
And then you get to the second issue, which is more problematic. You know, what language uh, and what kind of tone uh, can one use in terms of uh, uh, one's literature? And, for example, can one use the word bogus, for example? You know, um, and it, it could be argued that that, that could be used, uh, but it might be kind of uh, marginal. I think when the tone becomes accusatory or when, it, when, when the, the language uh, is deliberately used to denigrate somebody or a class of, of people, it's then that you get into the kind of the area, you know, of, of, of the limits of, of free speech. But we do have other, we have legislation about hate speech and various other things. This is separate to that. It is, but I mean, it's the, the same runes, as it were, yeah, the same kind of concepts uh, that you're dealing with. You know, what language can you, is there a limit to the language that one can use? Is there a limit to the claims that one can use? And there is a, a balance to be struck between somebody being allowed uh, to make a robust claim that you wouldn't agree with or to, to project a philosophy or a political standpoint uh, that you would be um, diametrically opposed to. But I think there is a, a tipping point, as it were, when, so, when language uh, becomes inflammatory, uh, when language uh, uh, becomes uh, used as a vehicle uh, to foment violence or, or, or to, to deliberately uh, uh, become incendiary. And it's just trying to find the, the limit of that language that becomes problematic, in my view. No, I think that's a fair point. I, I finally, on this, I just observe myself that the questions of boundaries of, of, of speech are always very important and they always do fluctuate slightly. And this case, it seems to me, is is a new element which has been introduced into uh, the regulation of Irish political discourse. And it deserves to be considered and, and debated rather than just accepted or, or, or indeed rejected. Listen, the last, last point, I wanted to come to you, Harry, because we're out of Christmas now, but a, a mainstay of the, uh, of, of the Christmas newspapers and the Christmas Irish Times is the state papers, the archive papers, which are released at the end of, of each year. And you had the, I'm not sure, is it the, uh, the agreeable or disagreeable task of, of ploughing through the those this year without going into the detail because it's all there for people to read and so much of it is fascinating because uh, they cover a, a very interesting period in uh, in Irish Irish political history and Anglo-Irish relations the 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 1990s how does it all work and I was very confused reading some of these pieces because they seem to cover different time periods the different pieces from the from the British and Irish archives I I, I got a bit confused about what the rules were and what was being released can you kind of clarify that for me yeah, well, there was a change of rules this year, Hugh. Um, previously, it was quite simple. I mean, the, the, once uh, a confidential government document was generated, uh, if there was ruin dangan or confidentiality for a period of 30 years, and after 30 years, the seal of confidentiality was broken, and uh, those uh, records were transferred to the National Archive, uh, which made them available for public viewing. So in the old system, uh, 2021 uh, was last December, uh, the, all the documents from 1991 uh, would have been released. That's when Charlie Hawhey uh, was uh, in his last year as Taoiseach and when John Major had just recently taken over from Margaret Thatcher. But a couple of years ago, the British changed the rules uh, on their side and they uh, began gradually to reduce that period of confidentiality from 30 years down to 20 years. Uh, so what happened then was that we were a couple of years behind and an increasing number of years behind each uh, year. And the, 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 why that's important is uh, that historical events that happened, for example, in the middle 1990s, 
uh, we were getting the British perspective on them, but not getting any Irish perspective and no prospect of getting an Irish perspective for another five or six years. So a decision was made over the past year that we'd catch up with the British this year. So what happened at Christmas was that we didn't just have a release of one year of Anglo-Irish documents. We had a release of seven years covering the time span between 1991 and 1998. And that was like a huge undertaking for media organisations. And for the first time ever, all the media organisations had to operate a pool system where each media organisation took one or two years and then shared the fruits of our research at the end of a very, very intensive um, uh, week. So that's why it was a little bit confusing because we just didn't have one year uh, this year, but we had actually 1991 to 1998 covering the Hockey era right to, to Bertie Hearn and Tony Blair and the Good Friday Agreement and what have you. And are those papers solely relating to Anglo-Irish relations? For example, what about all the other documentation? Because, you know, there was a lot of very interesting stuff happened in those Hawhey, Reynolds, Bruton years of the 1990s. Yeah, I mean, most of the uh, records from the Department of the Taoiseach, which covers the, the leader, uh, are, are released. And most of the Anglo-Irish uh, uh, papers were released because of COVID restrictions and because of the huge volume of material that would be involved over the course of seven years. Uh, they haven't, they're, they're gradually releasing uh the papers from from other government departments uh, over the coming months uh, and years. I mean, to do everything uh, from seven years over the course of one year would have been an impossible task for the National Archive and from everybody else. And because of COVID restrictions, of course, access to some of the documents in government departments was more problematic and they weren't able to to transfer all documents uh, to the National Archive uh, this year. So we got Anglo-Irish essentially, Taoiseach and uh, Foreign Affairs, Department of Justice, uh, Attorney General and the President's Office, I think for seven or eight years. But the rest of it's going to, the rest is going to follow, I think, over the next uh, 12 months or 24 months. And then just explain to me, how does it work? Are these hard copies? Are these physical documents? Do you go in like Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible, which are camera at the ready, click, 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 take pictures of all the pages? Or is there some electronic thing? Absolutely. They're big manila folders with uh thousands of documents. I mean, talk about angels dancing on the head of a pin as people uh, uh, sweated over decommissioning in the run-up to the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, thousands of pages uh, uh, toing and froing in relation to decommissioning North-South Ministerial Councils, uh, whether the UUP would talk to Sinn Féin, whether Sinn Féin uh, would actually be invited to talks. Uh, so uh, the, so you, you weigh through thousands of documents. And the only way that you can actually take a, a record uh, is by just using your, your phone uh, as a camera and uh, taking snapshots of each of the pages as you pass them. So you end up with thousands and thousands of pictures on your phone uh, of pages. And then once you get home, you just have to kind of just start wading through them and, and taking out the more, most uh, salient, most interesting and most historically significant points and trying to kind of batter them into a news story or into an analysis piece. You don't have some clever PDF to text converter working there or anything like that? No, <laughs> just quick fingers. Uh, that's, uh, you just, um, I, I'm kind of lucky that I touch type because I think touch typing is a, is a great skill uh, for a, a journalist to have because you can actually transfer stuff relatively quickly if you can type quickly. I completely agree and I deeply regret that I'm not able to do it myself. Jen, have you ever had this this task in the past or do you look forward to it in the future? 
No, I've never had the task uh, in the past. Um, and I would actually look forward to it in the future. <laughs> I, Harry's lo- yeah. looking at me like, are you... To give it to the old guys, the, I, I could actually, because it's 20 years now, so I can remember stuff that happened 20 years ago when I was actually mm. working as a reporter. I, I, I came across my own byline on a Did number you? of occasions. Harry? Which kind of aged me a little bit. So I think they, they tend to give it to the, to the, the more grizzled... I, the, I, I wouldn't uh, use the, the word grizzled, but I'd say now... I'd, in in six years I'll be twenty years. So I'll wait till maybe in six years' time they'll give me the 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 job of job. But no, I would love to do it. I I love the idea of like I'm the kind of person who just loves to get stuck into I know this sounds really boring, but like old records and stuff. I love pouring over things like that um and researching and stuff. So yeah. And I'm also supremely grateful to Harry for pretty much writing every paper <laughs> over Christmas. So the rest of us didn't have to do too much work. So thanks, Harry. Appreciate that. Well, uh, Alison Healy and Peter Murta also did loads of work. And my favourite story of all was about the 1990 summit in Dublin Castle and Charlie Hawhey uh, giving out about the quality of the venison pate <laughs> and describing the catering for all the European leaders as no better than pub grub. Pub grub. And I'd say there's lots so, of people sitting over their Christmas dinner thinking the same about their duck pate. This is awful. This is worse than pub grub. I yeah, totally agree with Charles. Dreadful Venice, 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 <laughs> pate. And of course, he, of course, he, he suggested that that uh, that the catering people get Le Coq Hardy, which was the very posh restaurant that he was noted for spending many thousands of pounds in uh, to get them involved in the next dinner. Yeah, only for the uh, the elite class, only for the, the leaders. And Aer Lingus Catering could do it for Absolutely. the rest. Could give pop nothing, to the rest nothing, of those nothing but the best for Charles J. Hi, indeed, as always. Listen, we will leave it there. That's all for today. And thanks very much indeed to Jen and Harry. Also to our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We're going to be back in your feed very soon. Do remember you can contact us with your views or your questions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much for listening.